0: Hello, and welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gummo Clare, and today I'm joined by Professor Amanda Lott, who works in the Digital Media Research Centre at Queensland University of Technology. We'll be talking about her book, Media Disrupted, Surviving Cannibals, Pirates and Streaming Wars, published in 2021. Welcome to the show, Amanda.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So I guess to start off with, could you tell us a little bit about your scholarly background and your path into media research? Sure.
1: Uh, My graduate degree is uh, radio, television, film, and I did a dissertation on television. Um, And that was basically just the turn of the century, um, having absolutely no sense of exactly how much television was about to change. Uh, So I, I, at some point in the early 2000s, decided that I either, well, I was either going to become a historian or I was going to follow my object of study. And I went with the latter. Uh, and so I think I've continued to follow video stories that are mostly watched in the home. Um, I think what we call them is is complicated, um,
0: but but that's where I started. And what what drew you to writing this book?
1: Oh, a couple of different things. Uh, the last project that I had was um, about television specifically, and it was tracing um, the changes. That in the U.S. industry experienced really beginning in the late '90s uh, up through it's a 20-year period, basically '95 to 2015, Uh, and that was very much the story of how cable series developed. Um, And then the tail end of that book was moving into the early days of, of streaming originals as well, and. As I finished that project, I sort of felt that I had had finally gotten a handle on how digitization uh, or new digital technologies had affected at least the U.S. television industry and, and why different things had happened and other things hadn't um, that many had predicted earlier. But I had the sense... I was curious about other media industries and knew just enough to know that they hadn't experienced exactly the same changes. And I wanted to ex- to dive in and, and try and figure out what we could learn um, by looking and comparing those stories in different industries. And I think a bit of it, a fair bit of it as well, was sort of responding to some ways that the primary lenses that we used to understand what was happening in media um, weren't quite right. And so, you know, one of those was uh, sort of this loose use of the term tech um, and the conflation of anything that used the internet as tech. Um, And, you know, I think using that prevented us from really understanding what was happening in several industries. And then I think the other piece was thinking about technological change even more broadly and the tendency to look for really big theories. And the sense that I had was that those big theories, maybe something like disruptive innovation, um, they just weren't really well suited to tell the story of what had happened in the industries that I knew. And so the, I think what I, I the bigger hope was that, um, in in by telling the story and the comparative story of four different media industries, um, really hoping that experts in other industries would would do similar kinds of work, um, so that we could begin to put together maybe a story about technological disruption and 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 the internet as a as a technology in particular you know that's sort of built from the ground up instead of trying to assume that we could assert something from the top down
0: so given that the whole book is arguing for this kind of complexity and nuance across industries when approaching the internet given that kind of emphasis on complexity it's, it's really impressively kind of plain speaking and clear in its account of these industries but g- given the subtitle's focus on kind of pirates and cannibals and streaming wars readers might kind of initially be surprised to find that actually not loads of each chapter speaks about the internet kind of um is the main focus which I, i found really really refreshing and you touched on there and you suggest that instead the kind of some of the main drivers of media industry upheaval might be more about business strategy or malpractice and the importance of consumer demand which is only then kind of refracted through technological developments and so you already touched there a little bit on um these overarching narratives about disruption, and you call these kind of magical thinking that underpins a lot of these the simplistic theories. Where does this magical thinking come from predominantly? Is it within the media industries, Silicon Valley, or, or elsewhere?
1: It's a good question. I think I would attribute some of it, it it's hard to disentangle, because... On one hand, I'm studying in in, in the chapter on newspapers in particular, sort of the story of how the technology changed that industry. But a piece of that story that I don't really talk about is the consequence for expertise um, and um, the the kind of information that circulates. And, And on one hand the social media universe, a blogosphere in which anyone can, you know, write opinion or knowledge and circulate it. Uh, those are incredible gains in communication in some ways. However, you know, as someone who studied these industries before um, any kind of digital d- disruption, I would say that, the quality of sources specifically in sort of specialized journalism, uh, has deteriorated really significantly. Um, and as a result, and sometimes I kind of call it the hot take culture. Um, it's very easy, I think for, you know, a well written perspective that, lacks historical context, lacks an appreciation for how the business really works um, to really take hold and then perpetuate itself. Uh, So I think part of that magical thinking uh, can come from the lack of rigor uh, that used to be a part of as, you know, some communities of journalism that that aren't in existence anymore. I think I'm thinking specifically about what I'd call trade press, um, and and the the journalists that used to be you know specialized in these industries who did in-depth investigative reporting for publications like broadcasting and cable and uh, TV Week and a Variety still continues to exist. Um, but in so many cases, a lot of what those outlets, those that still remain, uh, now publish, um, it's often little more than uh, press releases. Um, and it, it's it's built much more around a breaking news cycle as opposed to really developing comprehensive understandings for their readers.
0: And so it's almost like the effects of one kind of disruption on the news news media further leaves the rest of the industry more vulnerable now to being less aware of what disruption might be coming down the pipe?
1: Yeah, perhaps. And I think it's also, you know, tied and I I don't, I'm not intending to be, there are gains in what we have as well in terms of the ability for far more people to communicate in sort of this public sphere. Um, But there's certainly a kind of celebrity culture around who gets to be an opinion leader um, and that celebrity isn't always rooted in um, you know who actually has a track record of being right um, and and so in other cases though there are experts that you know didn't have access that we to any kind of publication that now many of us can read so it, it really is an on a one hand on the other um, but I think that, The culture around sharing ideas and social media, the very condensed format often of the ideas that are being shared. Um, that that does in some ways contribute to more simplistic takes. Um, and I honestly, the other piece of it is that editors are important. Um, and, you know, they're just in, in many of these outlets now, the the, the role of editors has have been limited and they're not in the position of asking those hard questions and really pushing um you know, anyone's utterances to, you know, uh, strengthen their argument or show me some evidence. Um, instead, it's just all out there. And, and you know, it's up to us to, to pick and choose and to do our that kind of
0: criticism on our own. One key concept you introduce for explaining uh, disruption and the kind of structural underpinning of disruption is the metaphor of kindling. Could you explain what this means through the book and the way that the kinds of kindling that you identify have often been overlooked in analyses of media and the internet?
1: So uh, to be clear at the outset, the concept comes from Bharat Anand in his book, The Content Trap. Uh, which also looks at digital change in media, but um, does so from more of a – he's at Harvard Business School and it sort of, sort of comes at it from those kind of theories rather than um, really specific knowledge of how different media industries work. Um, but Anand t- opens his book talking about kindling through the metaphor of the wildfire, you know, um, what changes a landscape, you know, more, you know, than a wildfire, you know, it absolutely can, you know, eviscerate everything that's there. Uh, and, and so the analogy between the wildfire is to disruption. And, and, and Andy, his, his first chapter is just fantastic. And he sort of talks about the way in which when disruption or, you know, events like a wildfire occur, you know, our focus often goes to, well, uh, what caused it? Um, and so in that case, you know, it might be a lightning strike or a toss cigarette or a, a campfire left unattended. You know, why do we focus on that? Because we think we can fix it. Right. And indeed, you know, um, maybe you can you know, do better public service around campfire messaging and tell people not to toss cigarettes. But, you know, we can't stop lightning strikes. It's just how it is. Um, so he says instead of focusing on what caused it and also you know not getting too concerned with you know, trying to micromanage or critique and second guess how things were managed he says our focus should be on the things that let the fire you know really rage once that spark occurs and i just thought that was such an excellent way to think about and explain the differences of what happen in different industrial contexts, because you know, with just the four that I look at, the stories are really pretty different, um, and what happens is often quite different than what sort of the the simple expectations were at the beginning of of the century. Um, you know, for for television and film, for example, sort of everyone knew something was coming. And we had this phrase um, in the early 2000s, new media. (laughs) We didn't know what it was, but new media was coming. Um, And again, that's one of those situations where we were so focused on looking for and expecting new media that we, we missed what actually was happening, which was really it wasn't new media. It was simply that the internet provided a different distribution technology, you know, a different way for those pictures or those videos or those sounds to get from one place to another. And that, that different technology had different affordances, different capabilities. And you know, those were important for the experiences of, of users, um, but also because they opened up new ways for the business to work, right? Um, so whether that was in music, where um, you know the industry had been built around bundling a number of songs together and selling it in an album, um, because that simply made sense when you had to sell a physical good, uh, or whether that was in the, the case of, of, of the television industry and sort of expectations around you know, how television shows had to be, you know, we have all of these things that sort of were baked in based on those previous conceptions of the past technology. Um, but when you bring in a new way of funding it, for example, by having subscribers pay rather than relying solely on advertisers, and uh, you have a technology that can send different messages to different people at the same time instead of focusing just on creating one mass audience uh, it enables the creation of a much broader array of content that can still be commercially viable uh, than was the case when you know we were all you know, limited to the uh, single offering of a channel at a specific time
0: moving to some of the empirical um, aspects of the book and the first chapter of this is you look at the music industries and you suggest that uh, the recording industry has often been kind of seen as a canary in the coal mine for internet disruption um could you explain some of the kind of key myths that sprung up specifically around music in the music industry and how that became a formula for narrating subsequent disruptions and maybe the ways in which that was wrong or a simplification
1: for a variety of technical technological reasons music faced this uh, before other media um and i think my expectation is that if i you know stopped a number of, of folks on the street um you know and asked them what happened when the internet came to the music industry you know that the immediate story would be piracy pirates 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 right um and you know i think that mythology has has been passed on even to generations that weren't part of that period um and Indeed, uh, unauthorized file sharing was a very big thing for a few years. Um, but I think a lot of the way that story gets remembered is is just about you know sort of the the chaos or the presumed chaos that was involved, instead of digging in and, and reminding people who might not remember um, what it was like to experience music before it could be distributed over the internet um, and and why uh, the opportunity of that moment um, led to the unauthorized file sharing that it did. Um, and, and then the music industry in that moment is particularly important to start with because it was really one of the first lessons of digitization on the music industry. Um, you know, in the earlier in the early century, as I was talking to folks in the television industry um, for other projects, and you know, sort of the consistent story was, you know, just we have to make sure this doesn't happen to our industry. Uh, and to some degree, um, because of, of file size and really just the difficulty of, of bandwidth and those sorts of things, you know, video-based industries had a whole decade to sort of sort this out. Um, but persistently, the sense was if this wasn't carefully managed, um, you know, this unauthorized sharing would become rampant and these industries would be destroyed. And, you know, as, as actually music, several music scholars have, have illustrated, you know, a good decade before I published this book and I I rely much on their analysis. The, the story of of pirates taking down the music industry really, um, you know, missed a lot of, of the, Complicated things that were, were going on around it, um, in terms of, you know, why it was that people were 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 sharing um, music instead of buying it, and and a lot of that had to do with the fact that. It, a better way of experiencing music became possible and there was no way to engage um, in an authorized manner because uh, the industry was, was so busy trying to hold on to the old way that it it really was, it was fighting um, what consumers wanted. And I think in many ways that that the really crucial lesson uh, from that moment and from that uh, medium was, you know, the irrepressibility of, of users once they identify that there is a better experience available. Um, and I think that's ultimately, uh, the lesson that we see in industry after industry and, the success stories. Um, it isn't, I, I mentioned, uh, Clayton Christensen's theory of disruptive innovation is one of those big theories. It's not that theory of of Christensen's, but another one, um, which was his theory of jobs to be done, um, which instead suggests that companies focus on what it is they do for consumers, why it is that consumers hire them. And just imagine how that early century moment would have been different if upon the arrival of MP3s or other Um, formats for distributing music online, if the music industry would have said, hey, uh, this is a different way to get music to listeners, Um, how can we improve their experience using this technology? And ultimately, that is kind of where we've ended up. Um, it, it took a long time. It allowed the entrance of you know new services to come in. You know that's really the role of what the streaming services are doing. Uh, they allow far greater flexibility. They allow um, really a wide range of consumption. Um, and 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 you know, I, th- I think at this point, it, it, what is offered in terms of streaming services. Um, might have been exactly that kind of imagined improvement um, on the music experience that um, unfortunately was was not imagined by the industry in the early 2000s.
0: Well, one remarkable thing about uh, the music industry that you identify is that um, for all the very obvious kinds of disruption to modes of consumption, user expectation, and modes of distribution, at the end of it all, we still end up with... Actually, the same power players in the you know the major labels are still there, and there's also been uh, this remarkable sleight of hand where now the kind of d- discourse, especially in the UK, is you know very anti-Spotify with some good reason, but. The major labels seem to be somewhat off the hook in that respect. And, and that's a little bit of a recurring theme, not entirely, but across some of the industries you identify where actually there's quite a lot of continuity as well as change. Could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it is. It is absolutely a paradox. Um, and I think the nature of those consistencies probably vary a bit industry to industry, my suspicion is those continuities in the music industry is that we have not yet reached the end of, of, of the disruption. Um, and uh, again, trying sort of to do ch- you know, fairly brief chapters of four different industries, uh, there, there are aspects that the book just doesn't really get into. And, and, and I think a key one is the relationship between, uh, the labels and the artists. Um, and I think, Many have illustrated that those were relationships that were inequitable and complicated before, and that continues to be the case. And so, you know, I think these questions of is there a more equitable and uh, I don't know, I'm not sure what other word to use, um, way in which we might remunerate artists and support a greater range of artists than the existing kind of commercial structures that indeed have been largely replicated uh, provide, um, those are outstanding questions and, and certainly um, remain to be answered. The other crucial piece is I really focus only on recorded music and you know the live music piece is also important um, and, and complicated in terms of, of the power dynamics there and the extent to which the labels had been, let's say, pre-COVID, um, really demanding um, a stake in those revenues, where historically that is where the artists really could rely on on income. You know, so I think all of that is 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 likely to continue to be contested um, in coming years. Um, but but yes, I, you know, I think it's it's not a surprising thing to note that entities that have great power, you know, continue to find ways to exert that power. Um, I guess it, in, 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 just trying to think through the industry is that I think in in every case, we do continue to have a number of the, you know, sort of legacy providers. Many of them are able to retool um, and persist often in that process. Some are lost, Um, but at the same time, the scale of disruption and change also allows new entities in right so historically, you know, when I, when I was training, we talked about media industries as having very high barriers to entry, um, and so we have this period of time in which you know the barriers fall at least for a second, and and it, there it is possible for some new entrants to come in. Um, in many cases, they very quickly become you know sort of the, they reproduce the same concerns that we have with the legacy industries, um, and, but. I think we'd have to I'd have to sort of work it through sector by sector um but one of the things that I think happens in in the video industries is that despite that continuity um we have greater pluriformity uh, to put a very big word on it um there's greater variation um and that that variation isn't insignificant um so let's say in the television industry overwhelmingly the logic was of ad support and that concern the things that advertisers were interested in really narrowed the range of stories, um, you know, to such a degree that we just conceived of it as natural and certainly PSBs, um, and their public funding could push the boundaries a bit, um, I think one of the really important additions to our video marketplaces now is that we have yet another source of funding and that's subscriber funding, which also changes those boundaries. um, And the internet distributed bit uh, makes it possible to have successful content, commercially successful content without a mass audience. Um, So those are those are, are bits of change that are happening amidst all that continuity. Um, and again, I think we're, we're still, it was certainly time to write the book in that there were 20 years of, of, of digital distribution to talk about, but um, you know, I have no illusions about you know, that we're anywhere near the end of this transition. In fact, we're probably just in maybe the late stages of the beginning, depending on industry.
0: So yeah, I mean turning to your discussion of the newspaper industry um, you you make this really important distinction between information news and journalism. Could you expand on that distinction a bit and how it, it helps explain the vulnerability of the news industry to upheaval through the internet
1: and this is I think one a, a set of distinctions that make make some journalists a little bit twitchy, but i I, I make them in in good faith right um, and and so part of the task. or or part of deconstructing what happened is understanding the multitude of ways that aspects of and capabilities of the internet that really don't have anything to do with newspapers um, or at least the central function of news um, had really big implications for the notion of the newspaper. Um, So newspapers and it doesn't matter whether they're print or on paper, um, but the business model historically was about bundling together a lot of different things. And by bundling together, a lot of different things, you were able to have a mass and heterogeneous audience. And that mass and heterogeneous audience was crucial to the reliance on advertising that was was central to newspapers. So even though you were paying for it, depending on where in the world you were, um, for the most part, 70 to 80% of the revenue was coming from advertising. So, the newspaper was largely a, and it's somewhat misnamed. It wasn't really about providing news, it was about attracting attention to those ads. Um, And some of that attention was attracted by basic information. Um, It's one of those time machine things to like go back to a day before you had access to the internet. But, you know, basic things like what is the weather? Um, There was no way to answer that question other than to, to find the morning paper or to sit and wait for radio or television to tell you. Um, and so, you know, something as basic as knowing what the weather forecast was going to be was a, an, a, some, a part of the value proposition of the newspaper. Um, you know, for many of us, I suspect, you know, we have weather apps on our phones, you know, like that, that information has been entirely, um, you know, Removed from what we would think of maybe as our news experience. All right, so so information is, is and, and other kinds of information are things like sports scores. I mean, think anything you can Google, basically, right? Like information is out there. You can get it at your fingertips. You don't need it. You know, you don't need anyone else deciding um, what it's going to be. So information isn't really part of the newspaper anymore. So the purpose of distinguishing between news and journalism was to really pull apart the crisis. Um, because news, um, and by news, I mean kind of the news of the day, things that are happening. Um, this is a thin layer of, um, context often. Uh, you can figure out what the news is simply by reading headlines. Um, you know, I scroll through uh, the Australian Broadcasting, the ABC website, and, and often have a pretty good sense of what's happening. Um, that's kind of the level of detail, frankly, that many of our radio and television uh, broadcasts have, have always provided. It's, you know, the stuff that's in the press release. Um, you know, there is a fire. You know, it's, it's it's not particularly deep. News is now ubiquitous, right? Um, think of all of the places that you can find out what's happening. Um, often you can't even avoid it. Um, you might find it in a social media feed without clicking on any articles at all, right? It's just, you know, you, you get a good sense just from the headlines. Um, I'm not saying that that level of news consumption leads to a healthy and functioning democracy, but it is the reality, Journalism, on the other hand, is 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 value added news. Uh, it requires training, it requires phone calls and expertise and added information and evaluating, often contesting information, contested information. Um, and journalism has always been the most expensive part of that newspaper. Um, But you had all of these other bits and it wasn't just the information in the news that was, was um, providing subsidy for that journalism. Uh, But it was also uh, sports coverage and recipe pages and obituaries and uh, comics and, you know, many other reasons why someone would feel compelled to have a daily newspaper. And if we think about all of those different aspects of the newspaper they've They've been pulled apart. Um, there are many different ways to access those forms of information or entertainment. You know you don't need a newspaper for recipes anymore. You can you, again, enter three ingredients and you'll have a handful of recipes in just a second. Um, so that's a really long way of of sort of explaining the business model crisis that is at the core of what was the newspaper as opposed to um, assuming that it's about whether people want to read on paper or online or assume that um, any startup news outlet is going to somehow create a better relationship with advertisers that's going to change everything. Um, We we have many phases of, of, of how that industry was going to be changed and saved and they've consistently failed um, partly because of the overemphasis or, or, or a, a greater belief that advertisers are going to throw money at things and was actually the case. Um, and I think at the core just a misunderstanding of, of what the core of the business was and, and why you know it, it un, unraveled um, in the early part of the century
0: and then you you kind of set the stage for this this unraveling which you've already explained in terms of the business model but in in kind of the the longer history through the 20th century of um the development in ownership of newspapers and particularly as it kind of intersects with shifts in regulation um and broader kind of political economic shifts C- could you could you expand a little bit on that and the the kind of three step shift that you identify in the ownership of newspapers and how it really sets them up for this fairly you know fairly kind of systemic collapse uh, once the internet kind of comes knocking
1: right uh yeah and again the details of this history vary country to country so this part of the book is, is fairly u.s based but there there are parallels in many similarly industrialized countries so the newspaper the way that ownership um plays into this um it's a long story, right? Um, so newspapers were once, you know, very much locally owned. They were mom and pop enterprises, um, and so the first stage of change that really begins to happen, you know, immediately post war, if not a bit before, is um, the establishment of of what called in the U.S. newspaper chains. I mean, basically, it's just, um, you know larger holdings. And at that point, that change gets critiqued, but it's not nearly as significant as what comes next. Um, because in that moment, it, it's about trying to find economies of scale. But these are businesses that at least are still based on trying to provide newspapers. In many cases, they're, they're trying to provide it better. Um, often it's a step that's required in order to you know engage in some sort of technological innovation. The next stage, though, is when those companies, those newspaper chains, begin to go public. And that's you know, sort of the mid late 60s, but it, you know, had more and more of them continue to go public through the 70s. And what, what that means is that at that point, the game becomes less about trying to make newspapers better and more about n- those newspaper stocks competing with all the other stocks for investors' money. Um, and at that point, it's very much about showing that you have quarterly, if not annual, gains that your costs are coming down, that there's growth available, um, and and that's really significant for um, slowly, I think, taking away the heart of those industries. Um, that and and the pieces of of newspapers that you know weren't. As commercial, right so the journalism newspaper stocks are incredibly successful um, because the newspaper business is is a good business in the sense that um, and it's it's a business that investors want to be involved in because it constantly turns out revenue right there's it, it's advertising every day, money in money out, money out, money in and and there's no period in which there needs to be sort of new development or um r and d and we don't know how the industry's going to change it's just money and money out money and so it's it's reliable cash and so the the newspaper companies kind of become beholden to this process of, of of financialization and we go from the newspaper chains start to buy each other and so it gets bigger and bigger and you know the pressure is on the companies making themselves look good and be ready for these kind of massive acquisitions, which again means cutting away any conceivable, quote unquote, fat um, and, you know, trimming out as many jobs as possible in, until really they're hollow shells. And and it's fine because there's nothing to compete with them. Um, in many cases, they are there's only one in each major market, which means that they're able to really de- tell advertisers, this is the cost and advertisers don't have anywhere else to go. Um, and so all of that is sort of that the crisis is building over the latter part of, of the last century to the point where you have these, because of the acquisitions, many of them are carrying tons of debt, um, which is exactly the opposite of what you need in a moment when they need to fundamentally remake themselves, and often fundamentally remaking yourself requires a fair bit of a cash injection. Um, and so, and I think the story or the focus was often um, on how newspapers were dying, and instead of necessarily why that was happening, um, and that the I think the assumptions were often that that audiences were disinterested in what they were offering. But the reality was that so much of their value, the reasons why people subscribed had been stripped away um, and and they were really left you know with what were you know very, and they were thin in terms of content they were heavy in terms of advertising and as people began to have other options and they could get that thin layer of news just about anywhere else um, you know they 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 stopped subscribing and that you know very quickly leads to a death spiral in terms of you know you, you take away subscriber money and you take away attention which brings down your advertising um and and the advertising piece and and the way you know, arguably, the biggest disruption that the internet introduces in terms of advertise or for the newspapers is, is other places for advertisers to spend their money. Um, in many cases, advertising tools that are better um, than the newspaper, right? So again, we have to Think in terms of what was available in the last century for advertisers. You know, newspapers were great. They showed up at everybody's house. They were, you know, again, mass, heterogeneous. That's where you, if you wanted to get your message out, that's where you needed to be. Uh, what does the internet do? Uh, well, um, it makes it possible for advertisers to put their messages in front of consumers exactly when they're searching for something. Oh. That's that's a helpful tool, right? Um, So search uh, begins to take away money from newspapers because advertisers don't want to pay to reach everybody, um, but they do want to reach the people who are specifically in the market for their good. And what comes next? Social. Um, What is social? Well, um, it's it's a more targeted opportunity, um, but it's also where we spend our attention now. Um, and so where does an advertiser want to be? They want to be where they're going to be seen. Where are you going to be seen in someone's social feed, not uh, on a newspaper website where people spend very little time. So you know, it, it really was uh, or continues to be a, a perfect storm of, of complication, uh, making it very difficult to sustain uh, that industry as it was.
0: And, and I suppose what um, that chapter in particular, but then also, well, most of the chapters, to be honest, the the kind of big overarching theme that doesn't always get touched on elsewhere is is about basically corporate greed and an absence of regulation leading up to the arrival of the internet, right? Um, leading to kind of abuse of customers in many ways.
1: Yeah, I, and I think in many cases there... Weren't a lot of options for consumers, right? So in many cases, the competition was was very limited. Um, I, that would certainly be the case for newspapers. Um, and, and the consequence of that were, were, you know, industries that that tried to contain the innovation or and the opportunities that internet distribution offered. By by trying you know to force on consumers you know you can experience it but you have to have it the way that we tell you Um, and in many cases there weren't alternatives I mean that's where the barriers came down and many new entrants came in and and succeeded was by offering something that the legacy industry wouldn't um, and that as a result the legacy industry eventually kind of had to come around to offering I, I think it's a fine line between Greed and just the nature of capitalism. Um, but it, 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 and I'm not sure what role regulation could have had. Um, you know, different countries have different histories. Um, I think the most, I don't want to call it the most important story, but you know, in, in terms of Democracy and our times, I think, probably the the story or the industry with the greatest implications has has been what has happened in terms of news. Um, but I think we see the consequences, especially um, in let's say the United States, over somewhere like the UK, um, because of the lack of a public service broadcaster um, and a history of non-commercial news um and and to me just for context for your listeners i'm an american but i've been in australia since 2019 and so i watched you know covid play out from afar and you know i i can't help but think that um a lot of the reasons that America has had such a difficult experience with that and then just the the lack of kind of shared cultural understanding of scientific fact um, has to do with the lack of um, a belief in, 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 in a news source in the way that um, a public service broadcaster like the BBC has incredibly high levels of trust um, and that ability to be regarded as The truth. Um, Of course, there's there's scandals and you know there's moments of crisis, but overall, um, there's there's the there just has not been that same kind of force for um, of trust um, in the American environment, which has allowed for the kind of partisan news consumption um, and belief that that occurred
0: returning to the a little bit to the point you made about the kind of unwillingness to cede control that's sort of been a kind of theme across the me- these media industries that's something you identify as being a kind of inflection point in the history of cinema but that comes that quite long predates the internet with the introduction of home video and that that actually kind of set the stage for cinema a little bit which made made them in, in some ways more um more durable when it came when it came to the internet's arrival could you expand on that a little bit
1: yeah the cinema story is the best one in some ways um it's the it's the industry that i'd argue has, was disrupted the least or has been at this point let's say pre-covid it's important to understand i delivered this book pre-covid um it was disrupted the least um but the reason for that is that it's kindling to go back to that concept much of the kindling had been burnt out um, Let's say in the late 80s, early 90s, um, again, traveling in our time machines, remembering, there, for the few of us who can remember, um, let's say pre-VCR days, how difficult it was to watch movies. Um, you couldn't just decide to watch anything. You were really then you know, limited to what was available and showing at your multiplex or your, your local cinema or whatever a television broadcaster chose to offer at a particular time. Um, There was enormous pent up desire and people wanted to watch movies more than that, but there was no good distribution technology. And so when the VCR and the rental and and sell through markets come in, um, much of, of that pent up demand gets resolved Um, And interestingly, in that moment, exactly the same arguments are made about, you know, this is going to destroy cinema going, it will be the end of cinema as we know it, the industry fights it um, in the US all the way to the Supreme Court trying to prevent people from this access to film. They lose, um, at least the court case, but they win very much in terms of the business, because what happens is, is there's just so much more consumption of film. People continue to go to the cinema, people continue or establish habits of, of renting and buying film, um, and that rental and sell-through market becomes an enormous source of revenue for the industry, uh, so much so that it is a, it's disastrous then when streaming arrives and begins to take it away. Um, so it, what I love about the cinema story, and it's just astounding that it this all happened not very long ago, um, but it, it, it precisely works out many of the exact same dynamics as these industries are experiencing now with streaming. And and we see how um, it's it's not about cannibalism, um, but it's about um, you know, the way that consumers expand often their consumption when they're given more choice and control over um, you know, their, their video storytelling. Um so, yeah, uh, I i think the cinema experience for a long time has been about experience, um, that people choose to go to movies because they want the experience of going to the movies. Um, and so I don't see the kind of um, death threat um, that some suggest uh, streaming poses to cinemas. Um that's not to say that the innovation that can be done in terms of theatrical exhibition, um, you know, maybe imp- focusing on improving that experience and addressing the reasons people choose to not go to cinema, um, you know, that's those are the spaces I think that are, are are still open and can strengthen that industry instead of worrying so much about um, what people watch in their home um and 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 to you know frankly to give them more of a reason to leave home instead of and, and not worrying so much about um whether the movies are available there or not
0: yeah I suppose a, a point of comparison there would be the distinction between the recording and live music industry, right the experience of live music being an analogous to going to the cinema and it, no one would suggest that listening to a recording at home negates the what the desire to go see a band play it live um yeah, no, I, I found that really interesting and the idea that it, it has already been played out in, to some degree in a way that's been repeated. One c- maybe counterintuitive point of difference that came up in the in the film example was that the way that cinemas have actually ended up in some ways with a, quite a pronounced bargaining power today, particularly through kind of awards infrastructure, which I've, I found really interesting. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that and then what it tells us about the configuration of the film industry after internet disruption?
1: For listeners who don't know, uh, <laughs> in order to be eligible for certain awards, you have to have theatrical distribution, um, and so in in some cases that has led some of the films that streaming services have commissioned. You know, it, it, it has led them to try and and, and make that happen. Um, Pre pandemic, um, the the theaters were able to really. Um, make it difficult uh, for services such as Netflix to get their movies into major theaters. And so often they were you know, sort of limited to more to the art house, um, which was enough um, for that eligibility piece. Um, and but, but again, this is a long, long story. Um, in many ways, it repeats what happened at the dawn of television and the response of theater owners at that moment in thinking that television provided an existential threat to their business then. Um, and so I think of the industries, this cinema and the issue of um, theatrical distribution has clearly been the most affected by the pandemic. Um, and I think an important part is to understand that it's not simply about whether films show in theaters It's about the extent to which the performance in that first window, um, you know, whether something was regarded as a box office hit, that became very important in setting the rates at which it would then be sold uh, to cable channels, you know, how much it would be promoted on DVD, sold to television, on down the line. Um, All of those were business practices that developed, you know, over years and in time, and all of that can be reconfigured. Um, I I think an interesting point to consider is what does more flexibility in the pattern of film success mean for the kinds of movies that can be made? Um, and so, you know, a, a critique you hear often of the movie industry, especially the last decade, is, you know, oh, it's all just superhero movies. And, and to a degree, um, you know, that is this been the story of the, the last two decades, um, that the kind of films that Hollywood has made have been very focused on what will get butts in seats at theaters. Um, and that kind of steadily limited uh, the kinds of movies that were being made. And so I think, again, th- there there's often this tendency to think in terms of competition when there's also a fair bit of complementarity. Uh, what we see at this point uh, is that there are different kinds of movies that drive people to theaters um, that then, you know, get their attention on a Friday night date night when they don't want to get off the couch or a Saturday night when they're watching a movie together as a family. And those date movies, those family movies, um, you know, some of those more introspective character stories that you know wouldn't drive people to the theater uh, were increasingly falling away. Um, and in, in some cases I think we can look at what the streaming services are developing and focusing on and see that they're, either bringing in new production or creating a space for those movies, um, that, you know, wasn't available at the, at the, the cinema anymore. So, um, it, again, kind of this pluriformity, you have different kinds of stories being able to be told in different places due to different business models and, and due to, uh, different distribution technologies.
0: And then, and then the final uh, empirical chapter is about TV, which we've already spoken about a little bit. Um, I guess before we dive into that, you you make a suggestion towards the end of the book that actually this previously quite clear distinction between TV and film is maybe being slightly shifted by by process of internet disruption. And you you make this really interesting distinction now, perhaps between durable and ephemeral. Video, I guess you could call it. could you talk a little bit about that kind of that shift and how you identify it before we start talking about what's happened in the TV industries?
1: I think if we're honest, if we think about what television is, it's been a big category, right? You know television was the main source of video entertainment in the home. Um, But a television day or a television schedule included a really broad range of of content, um, much of which had, you know, different underlying business models Um, things like sports and news uh, really had to attract enough audience to pay for itself in that first viewing. Um, Same with things like a lot of talk shows Um, whereas series Um, often could be valuable in terms of later sales. At least this was certainly the case for the U.S. market. Um, So the idea that once you create a series, you can sell it again and it will earn earn more revenue. So I think it's not that I I am destroying television or killing television so much as I I want us to acknowledge that it it had become sort of, overburdened in terms of what we were lumping in there. Um, What I'm really after here is um, helping understand how it's actually possible for lots of different things to persist, but that there may be a bit of reorganization. Right. So um, almost consistently when I talk to journalists um, or I'm talking about television, the question is, well, you know, is this the end of channels? And, and then that's, you know, another one of those myths that's out there. Television's dying. Um, no, it's changing, though. We can't deny that at this point. Um, the, the numbers at this point are pretty stark in terms of of audiences, um, you know, not consistently showing up for the kind of primetime programming that they used to turn up for, at least in the in the quantity, um, they're not. I, I don't think it's productive to think about you know that we're going from the world of channels to just the world of streaming, um, but probably for the foreseeable future, we're we're in this intermediate stage uh, where both exist. Uh, the analogy that I've often used, um, again, I'm not sure how well it translates into every national context. Um, but in the U.S., in, before television, radio um, had series, like comedies and dramas, and that was what filled up the evening programming. Um, and when television came along and could do those comedies and dramas with pictures, um, you know, everyone, you know, the ringing of the hands, it's the end of radio. And yet radio is still here. Uh, what did it do? It reinvented its content to complement this other technology that had come along. Um, and so in the case in the US, it became more local, it became more music and talk-based, and it, it, it continued to offer a different uh, value proposition for uh, listeners. Similarly, I suspect the relationship between streaming services and channels um, that the ephemeral content, the content that's still that is is so much better experienced in the moment, um, an advertising based business model still supports that really well. Um, it it still complies with a schedule. Um, it will get a bunch of people to watch something at the same time together because of the nature of the timeliness. But the scripted stories, documentaries, movies, in which we all have our own specific tastes and moods, um now that we can choose among you know many many titles uh to watch it any time in any order at any pace um it, uh, those that kind of content is is really not well-suited to a schedule environment. It's not capable in many cases of bringing together a mass heterogeneous audience. Um, and so it requires a bit of subscriber funding in order to, to, to make its production possible. Um, it continues to have that it, that durability, right? Um, you can watch it again and again, or you can find it and appreciate it decades after it was created. Um, it is available. It, that was one of the big limits of broadcasting was just how ephemeral all content was. Um, so I think it, I don't see this all in terms of... Um, certain media being killed off or dying at all, um, but a a reconfiguration of content such that it's, its features align with the different business models and distribution affordances of the variety of technologies that are now coexisting.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you say, I think even a kind of cursory glance at media history shows that the kind of concerns about different media dying off are basically kind of, you know, constant and, and recurring. But but you kind of suggest that particularly in the US, as well as predictions of the impending doom of television being very widespread, there actually also seemed to be a degree to which quite a lot of people were quite keen on the idea of TV as they knew it dying off because of the specific... Um, configuration of the industry, particularly with cable networks. And that really interested me because obviously I, I'm in the UK and our relationship is is quite different, I think, with TV. So could you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So prior to streaming, uh, I think the US peaked, it was very close to 90% of the population paid for a cable subscription And pretty much everyone hated their cable provider. Um, And and so uh, there was just gross dissatisfaction, um, largely because um, market principles were not operating. Um, And so the cable providers were monopolies. um, And then the... The handful of companies creating content, uh, often what we think of as the studios, um, they were in this very powerful position um, actually over those monopolies of, of being able to you know, sort of say, well, um, the classic example was is the Disney conglomerate who owned ESPN, which was crucial for any cable service to have. Um, and for the ability to say, well, if you want to have ESPN on your service, then you also have to carry all of these other channels. And and as a result, the experience for Americans was that we got these larger and larger bundles of channels, but they weren't. There was no market demand for them in many cases. Um, and you know it. Correspondingly, bills for those cable services kept increasing and increasing and increasing, and you know, there just was so little free to air um, that you know, not subscribing to those services was a choice that you know many did not want to to have to make. Um, and so, I think the sense of being held hostage to this situation where. There was no alternative, and um, you know, perhaps not dissimilar from, you know, how music listeners were feeling at the turn of the century in terms of wanting to access music a different way. Um, so uh, the it is a very peculiar dynamic that had developed Um but it, and it very much was defined by consumers just having very little choice um and and you know a handful of companies having a whole lot of control over what uh, consumers were being offered and and really you know putting them in a position where they were required to pay more and more
0: so the way that uh the tv industry seems to be heading now perhaps to a casual observer might not feel a million miles away it's in some to some degree right where you've got a whole host of different um, streaming services with different IP which if you were to pay for them all together would start to become quite a substantial bill and to an outsider it, it might seem that yeah that is that's a similar kind of arrangement of just with the different kind of format but you suggest that actually this isn't the same old story of media competition because Apple TV versus Amazon Prime they're actually serving fundamentally different purposes for their parent companies, um, which really interested me and suggests that, you know, that is a genuine disruption today. And could, could you expand on that slightly?
1: And I think it, sorting out the the streaming competitive environment is complicated. I, I think we're, we're still, I don't know that, I don't know that everyone's going to make it, <laughs> Let me put it that way. Um, but it's important to recognize the different the differences among them just because they're internet distributed and you pay for them. Um, as you noted, they're really different businesses behind them. Um, in some cases, like Netflix, and Netflix is a pure play service, it exists simply you know, you give us money, we give you video. Pretty straightforward. Um, many of the others that have launched in the last couple years, such as Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, HBO Max, um, these are services that are primarily reliant on a, a library of content that's been created over decades. Um, you know, so they have very low content costs. Um, of course, they're developing new programming to some extent, um, and, and they're, you know, I think we can view them as an effort by those companies, certainly to extend their business into a new form of distribution, but it's not clear that they have a bigger strategy yet. And then, you know, in entirely other cases, Apple and Amazon, where they are, they're offering video, why they're offering video is not entirely clear. In the case of Amazon, it's to help encourage membership and that membership leads to more retail purchase. And that's the core business of that company. With Apple, it's you know tied to keeping people in a device ecology and and probably trying to expand the extent to which people not only pay periodically for major devices but also are paying Apple a monthly bill bill for some reason. right? So in, in those different situations lead, to different priorities, Um, you know, they're trying to get uh, a success is not necessarily the same for all of of those services. So, I mean, I think that's an an important part of understanding what's out there. Again, in that comparison to cable, cable was a... You you had cable, you know, like it was a, an ordeal to get it. In terms of somebody coming to your house and installing it, it was an ordeal to get rid of it. Uh, whereas all of these services, at least at this moment, allow much more flexibility. Um, and I think there can be a mindset that you know persists from the past, in which content, the kind of content of dramas and comedies that we're talking about, you know, was tied to. Um, watching things as soon as they're available because they're going to go away. You know, timeliness used to be really important. Whereas when things enter a library of one of these services, the, it's not going away anytime soon. And so that allows viewers to have different relationships to these services. So whereas you got cable and you had it you know, for conceivably ever um, – it's much easier to come in and out of these services. And that's just not a behavior or a a practice that we've had. Um, And I think that's something that many of the services are trying to sort out. You know, how do you provide enough value to keep people with you? Um, And, you know, if they figure out the answer to that question, then they will continue to get those monthly fees. Um, But otherwise, the the opportunity exists for subscribers to, you know, subscribe at certain times of year to the different services and catch up on libraries and come in and out, um, in a way that, um, I think helps manage some of those fees, which yes, if you have all of them at the same time, um, are quite significant. Um, but you also must have an awful lot of time. to.
0: Watch them. <laughs> Very true. Um, so, I mean, To kind of bring it towards a close i mean the the whole book does this yeah incredible job of complexifying the story across these industries and and to really emphasize industry specificity but then there are the key points which we've touched on already of continuity and similarity what would you say are the the main ones that you'd identify um and then finally i guess what other media industries are in real need of this kind of disruption oriented study in in media
1: Oh, wow. Two very big questions. Um, now, I think the, as we've talked about the persistence of many of the legacy entities, I think that's a lesson that if, if I'm reading this, maybe as someone who's not even interested in media industries, but um, in, in in technological innovation and disruption generally, I think it's, that's, if you're an incumbent, perhaps that gives you, you know, some comfort. Um, but I think it's important to appreciate or or a key learning potentially is understanding why those companies have been able to persist. Um, and in, in, I think every case, um, ultimately they had to evolve and, uh, offer an experience that, gave users, viewers, readers, listeners, um, you know, the the experience that they were after. Uh, they they it, it, I don't know that any has been able to really hold on to the old model. And so there's many examples here of companies that tried to hold on. And I think maybe part of the lesson is that, you know, it's just a waste of time to, to evolve and innovate more quickly, it seems to serve them it creates less opportunity for new companies to come in, at least. Um, other industries, it, 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 had I had I more years, um, I think there's a lot of attention right now in the video game industry, and it would be, I, I it is a sector that I just don't know enough to even you know hint at uh, how the story might be similar or different. Um, but it too has had these. Uh, you know, major technological changes in terms of, of, of consoles and the emergence of PCs and now online gaming. I think you know a, a similar investigation into that industry would be really interesting to set uh, relative to the ones here. Um, and I, I think you know newspapers is a, a, is just a, a segment. And when I focus on television in the book here, it's really focused on kind of primetime programming. Um, and so I think you know, thinking about other parts of the day and other kinds of programming and how the, they have been disrupted um, are you know, certainly other opportunities for expansion as well.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask you was um, at the introduction, you make a kind of you make a point of saying that you're avoiding a kind of normative or critical angle throughout the book, which obviously other work of yours has has worked very much from a kind of critical perspective on media industries. Why did you deliberately avoid that in this book and did you find that challenging, that 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 kind of writing?
1: I think part of it was related to uh, the the book is in a trade, it's from MIT, but it, it's in a trade line, so it's meant to be accessible to a broader audience uh, and I think in particular, I was trying to um, reach more of a, a business audience, uh, you know, frankly. Um, I think it's also tied to sort of the, the – I'm gesturing right now. I, I'm spinning uh, plates in the air imaginatively. Um, it, it's really difficult to pull apart the complexity and do the critical layers, right? It, it's very easy to quickly get down the rabbit hole um, when you're trying to, to put all the critical angles in um, each of those cases. And I think uh, it, it wasn't a, a an evaluation on any part. I think there are a lot of people doing really good critical work in the area. Um, and it just the intervention that I was most interested in making um, was to to not dig into that level and to, to make those arguments, but maybe um, to provide, more of a foundation about how things were operating you know it's it's more descriptive in ways um that then you know experts especially in in the industries that i i'm I'm not as expert in um could could take that and 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 um, do their great critical work it's all we're all building on each other and so it's what i had to offer this to go around
0: yeah, no, exactly. No, it's it's really, I think a lot of the literature that I read is, is kind of instinctively critical media studies stuff. And so reading something that's descriptive is very refreshing in lots of ways as well. And finally, what are you working on now?
1: Very soon, depending on where you are in the world, um, uh, a project on Netflix. It is, it is called Netflix and Streaming Video, the business of subscriber funded video on demand which digs into that area more specifically. Um, But I'm also now pivoting uh, apropos of your last question. The last uh, 10 to 15 years have been sort of an unintended journey into trying to build some explanations of how different industrial contexts work. Uh, The reason I started on those journeys was because the core question has always been, how do the stories change when you change the modes of production? It took a long time to answer that question, but now I I feel like I've I've got a grasp on it enough to go back and start doing this work of more systematically looking at the kinds of series and movies that are being made by streaming services and asking in in what way are they telling different stories and with what consequence in culture. So putting back toward the critical um and back for the textual but it's it's taken a long while
0: i look forward to reading it when it comes thank you very much for for your time
1: thank you it was a pleasure to stop talk with you